0: Hello everybody, thank you so much for coming tonight. It is thrilling to have a sold-out crowd here. My name is Sean O'Neill. I'm the Associate Director of Adult Programming and Partnerships here at the AGO in the Department of Public Programming and Learning, where we foster creativity, learning, and dialogue through experiences like this with art and ideas. We present talks, special events, performances, camps, and studio art programs for over 250,000 people of all ages each year. We acknowledge that we are gathered here today on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Tonight's talk, by the great Ross King, titled Mad Enchantment, Claude Monet, and the Painting of the Water Lilies, is held in conjunction with the landmark, spectacular, if you haven't seen it, Rush There exhibition, mystical landscapes, masterpieces from Monet, Van Gogh, and more. The exhibition was organized in partnership with the renowned Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and includes and explores the mystical experiences of 37 artists from 14 countries, including Emily Carr, Paul Gauguin, Vincent Van Gogh, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Claude Monet, of course. Uh, Putting together an exhibition like this does not happen without a coalition of extraordinary supporters and I am very happy to thank RBC, Tim and Frances Price, Richard M. Ivey, Mrs. John Flimmer, the Ontario Cultural Attractions Fund, and our media partner, The Globe and Mail, for their support. I think we should applaud. And I would also like to extend a special thanks tonight to Sheila Kay and the team at Penguin Random House Canada for their help Uh, bringing Ross here for all of us to hear. Many of you know that he has a new book which shares its title with tonight's talk and Ross has graciously agreed to sign a few copies following the talk at the back. You can also purchase the book, it is for sale. Now, it is my pleasure, my honor to introduce somebody I've known for years, I've learned from, and whose accomplishment uh, is Mystical Landscapes. It belongs to her, it's her vision, she's been working on it for many years, and uh, please join me in giving a warm welcome to the AGO's Senior Curator of International Exhibitions, a true visionary, Catherine Lochnan.
1: Good evening, everyone. It's my great pleasure tonight to introduce Ross King to you. Born in Canada, Ross lives in the village of Woodstock near Oxford, Lucky thing. He holds degrees from the Universities of Regina, York, and University College London. After completing his postdoctoral research, Ross thought he'd follow a professorial career, but he began writing instead. A storyteller with a passionate interest in his subjects, an in-depth knowledge of historical contexts and cultural geography, Ross King is perhaps the most popular writer of art history today. In 2000, he began to apply his interest and knowledge of Italian, French, and Canadian art to writing nonfiction. His books include Italian, Brunelleschi's Dome, Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling, Machiavelli, Philosopher of Power, Leonardo and the Last Supper. I think many of us are very familiar with his Canadian book, Defiant Spirits The Modernist Revolution of the Group of Seven which came out in 2010, and his first French book, Judgment of Paris, which won the Governor General's award, as did the Leonardo book. This is his second French book, and it is, of course, entitled Mad Enchantment, Claude Monet and the Painting of the Water Lilies. It is this newly released book that we're here to celebrate tonight. It's full of fascinating details and anecdotes, which provide a window onto the conception and production of some of the most beloved paintings of the late 19th and early 20th century. Monet's water lilies at the Orangerie in Paris, which as you may know uh, is now part of the Musée d'Orsay, are a destination attraction for cultural pilgrims from all over the world who spend hours in contemplation of them. They are featured in mystical landscapes where they're considered in the context of Zen Buddhist practice. While reading Ross's book, I was struck by the difficulty that Monet encountered in capturing and conveying his vision, his sense of becoming one with his subject. And when he failed to do so, he would fly into rages in which he would attack and destroy the canvases. This makes Monet much more human and makes it possible to see the struggle, even the dark nights of the soul he went through in creating these mystical views which appear to be inspired by the flower sermon of the Buddha, in which the lotus was held aloft, signifying the journey from ignorance to enlightenment. Please join me in welcoming Ross King to the podium.
2: Thank you, Catherine, and thank you for coming out tonight. Um, and just let me reiterate what Sean said about the exhibition, which I was fortunate enough enough to see this morning. Um, and I was—I uh, mean, it's a, a wonderful tribute to what uh, Catherine has been doing for uh, so many years. And it was—it was gratifying for me to see uh, eight Monet paintings there. Um, he's a, a very appropriate and conspicuous presence there, um, because of the way his works inspire contemplation and meditation. Um, what I'm going to do then is talk, can you see this? Yeah. Ah, perfect. Um, I'm going to talk about some of this meditation and also as Catherine said, some of the, uh, the wrestling and the fighting and the, and the temper tantrums and things like that that, that came out of it. Uh, but his paintings, uh, Monet was called the painter of happiness because of the fact that his paintings seem to give us of uh, these tranquil images of the French countryside, these gorgeous visions of rural tranquility. One of his closest friends said that he, um, when he painted nature, he captured it in warm breaths of love and spasms of joy. And just to go back to my book on the Group of Seven, when they painted landscapes, they did not show it in warm breaths of love and spasms of joy, because there were a lot of spasms going on, but they weren't quite so joyful. Um, but I always think that the group of seven, taking nothing away from them, taught us to look at the Canadian landscape in a very particular way. And uh, when, whenever we, how, as a Canadian, can you see um, pine boughs laden with snow without thinking of Lauren Harris or a jack pine on the edge of a lake without thinking of Tom Thompson? And likewise, I think Claude Monet uh, has uh, given us these visions of the French countryside that make us see uh, the landscape outside of Giverny, uh, for example, Um, in a way that's very distinctive. And I always think it would be lovely to walk into a Claude Monet painting and stroll into it. Someone told me recently, a couple of nights ago in fact, that there's a movie by Akira Kurosawa called Dreams, I think he said, in which Martin Scorsese features, in which a character walks into paintings and inhabits them. And if I could do that, Claude Monet's paintings might be my first choice because who wouldn't want to walk into the beautiful meadows of Giverny um, or, uh, well, I would probably have to take antihistamines and slap on some sunscreen or something like that, or at the very least pluck up a parasol like Monet's wife Camille is doing in this painting in which Monet shows um, her with, his, uh, uh, with, with their son. In any case, it would be a very tranquil, lovely experience. And this, the kind of therapeutic value of Monet's paintings was stressed a lot during his lifetime. So much so that one of his biggest fans, Marcel Proust, claimed that standing in front of Monet's paintings, you were soothed with a, a kind of bomb, a pictorial bomb uh, that could serve the function, he said, or take the place of certain psychotherapists. And psychotherapy, of course, was in its infancy at this time. And Proust was effectively saying, we don't need Sigmund Freud, we need Claude Monet. Um, and one of my most uh, my, one of my favorite recent comments about Monet comes from Philip Hooke, who is, the, uh, is the, um, one of the Impressionist experts at Sotheby's in London, and he was asked in 2014, at the end of 2014, by the Sunday Times in London to uh, account for the popularity of Monet, who in 2014, and I think most years, eclipsed all other paintings, all other painters, if you add up what his works go for at auction. And so they asked Hook, "How do you account for his popularity? Why does everyone love Monet? Why do they want? Why is he the subject of blockbuster exhibitions? Why is he sought by the, the, the collectors and so forth?" And Hook said, "Oh, it's very simple. It's he, because he is the great antidepressant." Um, and which and I'll, there's a certain irony to that, as I'll talk about in a few minutes. But I think Monet himself would not necessarily have objected to that kind of characterization of his art because he himself wanted his paintings to offer what he called an asylum of peaceful meditation. He said that his paintings could offer stressed out uh, workers uh, this asylum where they could go and, and feel the, the cares of the world drop away from them. And so he very deliberately had this kind of meditative or contemplative um, aspect to his paintings. And to that end, he, by the 1890s, by the time he was in his, say, his um, late 50s, he had a plan of how to create this asylum of peaceful meditation. In the summer of um, 1897, a critic came to see him um, in Giverny, and I'll go into his house and garden shortly. Came to see him and went, had a tour of the water lily pond with Monet, and Monet gave this uh, wish that he had. Um, which was then written up and published the following winter, the following spring. Um, Monet said, imagine a circular room, the lower walls covered with paintings a meter high, entirely filled with a plain of water scattered with these plants, transparent sc- screens, sometimes green, sometimes mauve. So what he wanted to do was to create this asylum of peaceful meditation in a room, a circular room, it had to be Circular to give a kind of wraparound immersive experience because what he was trying to create or what he wanted to create is what we today would call an installation that would give spectators what we today would call an immersive experience. And what he wanted to do was give them a much broader sensory experience than just framed points of focus on the wall and have them be able to almost stroll into his paintings. And so Bear in mind that he's thinking of something, a circular room, paintings about a meter high. I'm not ruining the ending of my book or the, the, the story that I tell uh, by telling you that he did achieve this um, ultimately, albeit many years later, uh, through what, by January of 1915, he began calling the Grand Decoration, this great decorative project that he did. Um, However, it had been supersized by the time he came to work on it. These paintings are much, much bigger than just three meters high. In fact, they're six foot six inches high um, and each of these panels, this is a triptych which is uh, split between these three American museums and has periodically been reunited in 2011 at those museums and most recently in uh, the spring at the Royal Academy in London where it took London by storm. Um, Each one of the panels Um, is 14 feet wide, which means the entire composition is around 42 feet across. And this is just a fraction of the Grande decoration, part of this enormous immersive experience that he began working on in 1914. And so what I wanted to do in the book was to rewind about a hundred years and catch Monet at the point where he begins painting uh, these enormous water lily canvases. And so, what, what I wanted to do was to drill down deeply into those years, which happened to be the last 12 years of his life, when he worked on them, um, and look at his personal circumstances, which proved to be very interesting as he worked on them, and also the historical circumstances. And the historical circumstances were obviously going to be very interesting because I'm, when I say that he painted them from, be, began painting them in 1914 that date leaps out at, it, uh, at us because of that, of course, is when the First World War started. And so in many ways, these are war paintings. And Monet uh, actually began referring to them as his war work, as, as he uh, uh, worked, worked on them tirelessly uh, during those years. And so what I wanted to do is look at these, how he worked during the war years, and also to look at the personal battles that he was fighting at that time as well. before I come, I want to bring him up to 1914, just to give you a bit of the backstory of how he came to do these. He probably doesn't need a lot of, um, of biographical information for an audience like this, uh, but you can see that he was born in 1840, died in 1926, so he lived to be 86 years old, um, and uh, which is remarkable in some ways, because this is, if you um, see the uh, painting of him, Uh, by the lake, you can see he's got a cigarette burning in his right hand, and he was never without one. And this is one of the few paintings, or one of the few images you'll see of him without a cigarette burning. Um, He was an inveterate smoker, he loved smoking, um, and he smoked as he painted. Um, He was, of course, uh, came to fame in the 1860s, the mid-1860s, when he banded together with a group of like-minded young men and a couple of women, um, and to show work ultimately outside the, the official Paris Salon, painting crucially in a very different style than the one that was accepted by the um, Academy of Fine Arts in France and by the jurors of the official Salon, a group of people who in 1874, Renoir, Cezanne, Edgar Degas, etc., banded together in 1874 and showed their work at what we now call the First Impressionist Exhibition. And the term Impressionist, as you probably know, Uh, comes at least in part, not exclusively from, but at least in part from the painting that you see up here, Impression Sunrise, which he'd done in 1872 and which he put on show in this 1874 exhibition. They originally called themselves the Society of Independent Painters, which doesn't even sound catchy in French, and so the term (laughs) Impressionism caught on. And by the way, if you want to know more about this particular period in the life of Monet and when he was a struggling artist with um, his young... Painting friends, I modestly refer you to the Judgment of Paris, which I published ten years ago, and is, is which is about this moment in French art or in world art, the 1860s and the 1870s, and which I'm now calling the prequel to Mad Enchantment, which is the end of the story and the, uh, effectively the final statement of Impressionism. But in the Judgment of Paris, I give um, uh, uh, the accounts of the the kind of difficulties that these painters had in the 1860s, 70s, and into the 1880s where they were mocked by the critics, um, treated with hostility by the public, and treated with indifference and apathy by the collectors such that uh, they were unable to sell their paintings. And Monet went through very difficult periods in the 1870s in particular when he couldn't sell work and he had to rely on the handouts of friends and he had to rely for one entire winter apparently on nothing but potatoes for his diet uh, due to the fact that he was so poor. And this cartoon that I've put up from 1877 is a kind of caricature of the, the way in which the, paint, the paintings were caricatured by the general public, with the gendarme hastily steering the pregnant woman away from their exhibition for fear of the damage that, well, their their paintings might cause to her unborn child. But what I'll ask you to do tonight is banish from your mind everything that you read in Judgment of Paris, have you read it, or everything that you've heard about these poor struggling artists, because Claude Monet by the end of his life, in fact for really much of the second half of his life was not a struggling painter and in fact he was fabulously successful. All of the bad reviews were melted away and by the 1880s and 1890s and through the first decades of the 20th century he was really celebrated as France's greatest painter in 1909 he was declared the greatest painter in France <clears throat> the novelist Remy de Gourmont declared him uh, the perhaps the greatest painter who has ever lived and Paul Cezanne uh, said that he was simply the best and i think of all the encomia that Monet had that's the one that probably meant the most to him due to the fact that he believed that Cezanne was the world's greatest painter. Um, and in fact, he had 14 Cezanne paintings. He was one of the few people who bought Cezanne paintings before Cezanne died. He had 14 of them, which some of, some of them were in his bedroom. And when his work wasn't going well, his wife would discreetly drape uh, the Cezanne. So Monet didn't have these images of perfection reproving him from the walls above his bed, etc. And sadly for Cezanne, he, He died in 1906, and most of his fame, virtually all of his fame and the purchasing of his paintings was posthumous. Monet luckily lived long enough that he enjoyed not only the critical acclaim of his peers, but also the financial benefits that went with being the most famous painter in France, and in fact by the 20th century the most famous painter in the world, especially due to the fact that by the late 1880s and through the 1890s and into the 20th century, he'd been discovered by Gilded Age America. Every tycoon on Fifth Avenue or Newport, Rhode Island or Chicago, like uh, Bertha Palmer, had to have a collection of Monet paintings. Um, and so, for example, this is a headline from uh, 1907, and one of the things that Mrs. Potter Palmer spent her fortune on was Monet paintings. In 1891, she went to Paris on a Monet buying spree and bought 25 of his works. And ultimately, she one of which, incidentally, is in the show, uh, the haystack, the snowy haystack, which is now in the Art Institute of Chicago, um, is uh, it, uh, in Mystic- the mystical landscape show. Ultimately, she bought 90 Monet paintings. In fact, she was the wealthiest woman in Chicago by far, and she discovered she could get even wealthier by dealing in Monet paintings. And so she would buy his paintings and then sell them to her friends. And so ultimately she had um, more than 90 of them, which she decorated, used to decorate this um, enormous mansion that she had um, on Lake Michigan. And she was not alone by any means. She didn't even have the largest Monet collection in America that was held by a man in New York, James F. Sutton, who was president of the American Art Association. He had around 100 paintings. And so uh, Monet had, all of these fans in America buying his work, paying large sums for them, such that in France they began to worry that, uh, some of the critics began to worry that the rapacity of the Yankees was going to denude France of all of the best Monet paintings. And in fact, that was never going to happen because of the fact that Monet was a painting machine and he was always going to be able to requite everyone's appetite for his paintings um, and paint enough for everyone in America, in England, Um, in France and so forth, but he himself did have somewhat mixed feelings about his paintings going to America and into American hands because he does conform to the perhaps unfortunate cliché or stereotype of the Gallic snob who looks down on American culture. There was an American painting colony in Giverny, really from the 1880s around the time that he moved there and he held himself very much aloof from it. Um, and all, he, the aloofness had to vanish when his stepdaughter married an American painter and ultimately he had American in-laws with whom he got on very well and he was very proud of his American step-grandson. Uh, but he did, uh, I think, look down on American culture um, and in 1920 when Sutton's paintings were sold after World War One, after Sutton's death, um, and sold for record prices, Monet's friends reported to him the vast sums that People were opening their were paying opening their checkbooks books for in New York City, and Monet said this merely proves the stupidity of the American public. And so he was some some he was biting the hand that fed him in some ways. <coughs> Although, I should point out that he never failed to cash any of the checks that ca- came his way because he was very happy <coughs> to take American money. Because of course. It allowed him to live in the style to which I think we would all like to be accustomed. He moved to, this is his house and garden in Giverny, uh, to the northwest of Paris in the Seine Valley. Um, He moved there originally in 1883. Uh, He um, uh, was renting at that time because he'd not yet made it big, but the Monet gold rush started soon after that. Um, and so by 1890, when, he, when some of this American money came pouring in, he purchased it. And of course, then having purchased the house at Giverny and the property there, he was able to begin fashioning it in his own image. And so he began doing things like building himself a new studio. Previously, for the previous seven years, um, his uh, uh, studio had been a barn with a dirt floor on the property, and now he turned that barn into a beautiful living room attached to the house, and he then built a state-of-the-art studio with beautiful skylights. Uh, it was constructed by a very famous uh, Beaux-Arts architect named Louis Bonnier, uh, and beneath it, Bonnier built a garage for Monet's automobiles. You might not think of Monet as a, a, a car nut, but he, he was passionate about automobiles, and he had a collection of cars uh, that in 1912 was worth 32,000 francs. And then just to put that um, into perspective, It would have taken, uh, 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 the uh, the average wage for labor in Paris 1912 was 1,000 francs a year. as it would have taken the wages of 32 men to buy Monet's car collection. And he loved, he never learned to drive, but he loved being driven very very quickly through the countryside. And he got the first speeding ticket in Giverny in 1904, after which the mayor brought in a regulation that you could not have a horse going, uh, or could not take a car faster than a horse at a brisk trot. And so Monet had to watch the speedometer um, as he drove. But of course he had other luxuries, other things that he spent his money on. Um, first and foremost, the garden. Um, he, Uh, began uh, creating it in the 1890s after he purchased it. He took out the orchard because this had been a cider press with apple trees in it. And he completely transformed it, putting in flowers, not only the geraniums that you see here, but also the rose bowers that ran down a a Grand Alley from the the, the kitchen. The kitchen, incidentally, in the house where he got it, was said the best food in France. He had a personal chef who did all all of his cooking for him, um, a woman named Marguerite. And you, if you were lucky enough to be invited to Monet, um, dinner, was chez, dinner chez Monet was the, one, of the most coveted dinner invi- one of the most coveted invitations in France for many years. If you were lucky enough to get one, you'd be served by a butler wearing white gloves and you would eat all of this wonderful food. And then afterwards, you would get a tour of the garden. Um, and uh, not just the garden that we see behind the ho- immediately behind the house, but also of course the water garden which he began constructing in 1893, um, and, and, and on which he spent vast sums of money. Even, he spent even more money on the garden than he did on his cars. Uh, he spent 40,000 francs a year on his garden. Um, and he, sp- he spent 10 years getting it into shape, um, and once it was more or less finished in 1903, he began painting it. Um, and once he began painting it, he painted almost nothing else. He lived for 23 more years and painted almost nothing. He stopped, effectively stopped traveling. Previously in the the 1880s and 1890s, you may know he traveled quite far and wide across France. He went down to the south of France with Renoir. He frequently went to the the Normandy coast. He went to belle Isle in Brittany. He um, went to central France and into the Massif Central and did his paintings of the Cruz Valley but once he had his water garden, it was difficult to get him to budge from it, and he painted it incessantly. Uh, The first campaign lasted about five years, from 1903 to 1908, at the end of which, in 1909, he put 48 of these works on show, unveiling his water garden and also his new way of painting, uh, uh, unveiling it for the public to enormous acclaim and great uh, popularity. It went uh, on show at the Galerie Durand-Ruel in Paris um, in May and June of 1909. and It was a sensation. It was to that point in the 20th century, the most successful exhibition, the most popular exhibition um, uh, 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 that had been held. And it got reviews such as this one from the Gazette de Beaux-Arts, where the the critic said, for as long as mankind has been around and for as long as artists have painted, no one has ever painted better than this which has to be as good as a review um, could ever possibly be. And it was really typical of the way in which the critics and the public responded to his works. Um, And uh, so popular was it that by the time it closed in June of 1909, five separate newspapers had begun a campaign independently of one another to save at least some of these 48 works for the nation and have them kept together. The philosophy being, of course, that all of these works spoke to each other. They needed to be seen in tandem, in sequence, together, preferably in this round room that Monet had been dreaming about for, by this time, almost a dozen years. And so the newspapers launched the campaign. Monet would have been very happy had it succeeded, but he was a victim of his own success um, and all of the works sold. Paul Durand-Ruel was able to sell all of them, and many of them, in fact, went to the United States. And so Monet, at this high point of his career, and this really was the most successful exhibition he had ever had, even at this high point of his career, he was bulked in really the one thing that remained to him, which was to have this installation, this permanent installation, where people would be able to see this radiant series of waterscapes that he put on show. Um, And so. if this was the high point in his career, if you know your medieval philosophy, if you're at the top of the wheel of fortune, what follows, of course, is the wheel turns and you begin your descent. And Monet sadly began a very precipitate descent in, uh, the, over the, the course of the next five years. First and foremost because of the death in 1911 of his beloved second wife, Elise. He became a widower for the second time over his first wife uh, died in the late 1870s very prematurely. The woman you saw with the parasol on that first slide. Um, his second wife, Elise, then died of leukemia in 1911. And Monet was devastated by her death. He wrote uh, to her children, his stepchildren, to whom he was very close, saying that he was annihilated. He said, I, I, the painter in me is dead. Uh, he said, I can no longer work. And in fact, he did stop working. Um, And when he tried to work again about a year later in the summer of 1912, he found that work was uh, even more impossible because of the fact that his eyesight began to trouble him. He began having difficulties with cataracts and an operation was proposed to him, one which I think for good reason he was very reluctant to undergo. But he decided that his career as a painter was over at that point. The writing was clearly on the wall because he knew other painters of his generation and previously, who had suffered exactly the same fate. Um, In 1914, I'm I'm sorry, in uh, 1911, 12, Edgar Degas was virtually blind. And in fact, he came to Elise's funeral. And witnesses talked about the way he effectively had to grope his way out of the church. His eyesight was bad, and he had stopped painting. Mary Cassatt, likewise, again from Monet's generation, had. um, ultimately would undergo five unsuccessful operations for cataracts. Camille Pizarro likewise had eye problems in the last 10 years of his life. And even going farther back, Monet's very first teacher, a Swiss painter named Charles Blair, went blind within a year of Monet going into his studio when Monet was a young 20-year-old. And so Monet had seen all sorts of evidence of this, and now it was happening of people, painters, who had to stop working because of their failing eyesight. And he now had reached that point by the time he was in his early 70s. And so in 1913, he wrote to Paul Durand, ruel well, sort of officially announcing his retirement which was widely reported in the press. He claimed, I always wanted to believe that I would make headway and finally do something worthwhile, which shows us how Monet's reach is always exceeding his grasp and he always has the bar set very high for himself. And if Monet hadn't achieved anything by 1913, I'm not sure what the hope there is for any of the rest of us. Anyway, he says, alas, I must now bury that hope. And so he, at this point, he was 72 years old and he had officially retired. And as I say, this made the news because the great Claude Monet had retired. And that might have been it. That might have been the end of the story because I think Monet, had he stopped painting, probably would have died quite soon afterwards. And that's something that his friends recognized and they were very determined to get him painting again um, and taking up his, his paintbrush and working. And very fortunately then, that's when the second major character in Mad Enchantment comes onto the scene, and that's Georges Clemenceau, um, who was Monet's best friend. Um, they had been friends, for by this point, probably for almost 50 years. Uh, they went back very far. They seem to have known each other as young men in Paris in the 1860s. Uh, Clemenceau, in 1914, was a senator and a journalist who wrote, uh, journalist and proprietor of a newspaper editor and proprietor of a newspaper for which he wrote daily editorials. But he also, of course, had been prime minister of France in 1906 to 9, and then famously and significantly would become again prime minister in 1917 and become France's great war leader. Um, he and Monet wrote many letters to one another. They had a very affectionate relationship. The, um, Clemenceau would come to Giverny for Sunday lunch as often as he could, uh, and they would visit art museums together, and go to look at gardens together, and things like that. Uh, The relationship was very, very close. Uh, uh, Clemenceau would write, he had pet nicknames for Monet, he would call him, he would write to him and say, Dear Old Lunatic, or Dear Old Crustacean. Or or my favorite, he called him the Abominable Hedgehog. Uh, And uh, he came by his own nickname, the Tiger, very honestly, uh, because of the fact that Um, Everyone was petrified of him. In January of 1913, a journalist wrote that the whole world trembles before him. He was an incredibly intimidating figure. Um, One of my favorite quotes of his uh, was, he, he said, I pity those people who want to be friends with everyone. He said, life is a combat. And he experienced a lot of combat in the course of his long political and journalistic career. And some of it was quite literal because of the fact that he fought 22 duels with swords and pistols in the course of his career, and little did his opponents know when they, uh, br- when they clashed swords with him that they were coming up against the former fencing master at Miss Aitken's School for Girls in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, because in the um, 18- late 1860s, Clemenceau left Paris. He exiled himself from France and went to New York City and learned English and became a teacher of French and uh, And and fencing at a girls' school in rural Connecticut. Um, And so he was an absolutely fascinating figure. I um, knew a lot about Monet before I began writing this. I knew less about Clemenceau, uh, but he was an incredibly compelling figure and I think extremely admirable. He was an absolutely unstoppable force of nature. um, And he seemed to put the same effort into things like the the war and the tree and bucking up the. Parisians and, and negotiating the Treaty of Versailles, etc. as he did getting Monet, keeping Monet on track. Um, and in some ways, I think the Treaty of Versailles cost him less stress than Claude Monet did at various points. And Monet, in and so in, what happened then is in April of 1914, he came, as he so often did to Giverny, and this time he looked at some of Monet's paintings and saw some very early water lilies, small ones about two feet high by three feet wide that Monet had done in 1900 before the garden was actually finished and pain- paintings with, uh, which he had done nothing with. And Clemenceau made it almost an offhand remark that Monet should do some more of these paintings and find a rich man uh, who would pay him to decorate the room. So in other words, he was trying to revive this old dream that Monet had, had for more than a dozen years by this point of having this installation and putting something together. This was a very risky strategy on the part of Clemenceau um, due to the fact that Monet was in an emotionally fragile place at this point, as he had been for the past couple of years. And asking him to begin painting again was, uh, was I think, tempting fate. We might think that looking at th- this the image of Monet beside his garden would be an image of sheer bliss, that um, sitting in front of beautiful scenery that you've crafted yourself um, in the sun under a parasol, working, ex- exercising your s- much celebrated talents, it's something you enjoy doing, uh, would be pure bliss. But sadly for Mo- Monet, it was not always pure bliss. Um, and Clemenceau had another nickname for him, which was King of the Grouches, um, because Monet was, could be incredibly bad tempered. Uh, when he was it seemed to have been a very evenly balanced character away from his easel. He had a great passion for life, he had friendships, he was very sociable, um, he had friendships with very difficult people like Monet and Cezanne that went back many decades, and yet put him in front of his easel and he would begin to torture himself, and, and he had enormous difficulties with uh, what he was doing, or made things even more difficult for him, and he equated painting with torture. Um, again and again, he would say things in his letters like, how I suffer, how painting makes me suffer. It tortures me, the pain it causes me. Um, and there are many eyewitness accounts of him slashing his paintings, attacking them with a penknife, stabbing them, uh, taking them and, and stomping on them. And he, he wore wooden clogs often when he painted, so the damage was considerable. And he almost seemed to relish this kind of, wh- wh- one of his stepson's called the acts of violence he committed on his paintings. And so um, he worked himself into these dreadful rages when his paintings weren't going well. Uh, uh, One of my favorite stories about him, although it's quite a sad one, is when he went to Norway. He had a son, a stepson, who married a Norwegian woman and lived in Norway. Monet went to Norway in uh, 1895 to visit him, but also to paint the snow and to paint the mountains. And he said, curiously, it's going to look like Japan uh, because he, he loved Japanese art. Um, and, but never quite got to Japan, and so he thought mountain snow, uh, Norway will look like Mount Fuji, i will see something looks like Mount Fuji in, in Norway. And so he began painting, but work didn't go well. And a young Norwegian painter went to see the great Claude Monet at work and was treated to the unedifying spectacle of Monet jumping up and down on his paintings in a snowbank, having this temper tantrum. And this was not all that unusual. Um, He would have bonfires of his paintings and things like that when when his work wasn't going well. And what made Clemenceau's (coughs) strategy even more risky is the fact that no paintings had ever caused Monet as much grief and cost him as much mental energy and made him fly into such dreadful rages as the water lilies he painted between 1903 and 1908. They, of course, have been wildly successful, as I was saying, but the exhibition almost did not happen. It was supposed to be staged in 1907, but Monet had to cancel it, postpone it, because of the fact that on one day alone he burned 30 of the can- water lily canvases. And this, the American newspapers got hold of this and said that he'd burned $100,000, 100000 US dollars, Worth of paintings in one morning. And they said, the headline said, Is he an artist or a madman? or an artist or a fool, I think is how they put it. And he, he suffered vertigo. Um, he went blind for one point. He, at, at times of stress, he would lose his eyesight. Um, and so th- these were, it seemed, some sort of psychosomatic illnesses. And his rages became so dreadful, he would check himself into a hotel in a nearby town to keep himself away from his family. And, and, Keeping keep his family from suffering what they euphemistically call his mood swings. But I think we can maybe understand the reason that Monet worked himself into such a, a dreadful state as he painted because of the fact that we look at this work, which again is in, uh, th- this is a work um, in uh, the uh, uh, Mystical Landscape exhibition, and it's a remarkable painting, and I think when we look at it we can appreciate why in 1909 they, it caused such a sensation. Someone said, one of the reviews said, the abstraction of art can go no further than this. And of course, this was a couple of years before Kandinsky created what is believed. Kandinsky was massively influenced by Monet, especially his grain stack paintings. Kandinsky went abstract a couple of years later. And and so 100 and... Seven years later, we know that abstraction could and did go much farther than this, but it was a real revelation to people in 1909 what Monet was doing, because he'd rid landscape painting of all of the traditional markers like foreground, middle ground, distance, and he would pushed everything to the surface and began painting uh, not only things that were impalpable like water, shadows, reflections, clouds, and reflections of clouds, of course, not the clouds themselves, and made what were, uh, turned these into what the critics called upside-down paintings, but he painted things that were transient. He was trying to get these brief moments in time, and he was trying to paint uh, what he called the color of time. He was trying to get what time looked like in color, in living color. And so I think we can appreciate the difficulty he had staring into what his friend Gustave Geffroy called, who was a, a great writer and critic, called the luminous abyss of the water lily pond. And Geoffroy said he was pursuing his dream of form and color almost to the point of self-annihilation. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, but he was pushing the boundaries of what could be done with paint and and form um, at at that particular time. And so I think we can appreciate the difficulties um, uh, that he was suffering at that time. And so the riskiness of Clemenceau asking, him to sit beside the luminous abyss of the water lily pond and do some more of these paintings that caused you such grief 10 years earlier, now that it, he was without the, the balancing force of his beloved wife Elise, and uh, was surely asking for trouble. Uh, but Monet seems to have had no qualms about getting back to work. The time was right for him to begin working again, and in the book I discuss. I don't have time tonight, but I discuss one of the things that made him able to work at that time, and that was the movement back into his house of his stepdaughter/slash daughter-in-law, uh, Blanche, who was married to she was a stepdaughter who was married to his son. Um, his son died in 1914, which was an occasion of great grief to Monet, when he died in February 1914. But the um, Blanche then moved into the house to take care of Monet and really, in some ways, take the role. Um, of her mother as his sort of helpmate and someone who supported him. And so she played a big part in him starting to paint again along with Clemenceau, and I discuss much of that in the book. In any case, by um, June of 1914, it made the newspapers that Monet was back at work, and Monet wrote to Paul durand ruel 18 months after he'd announced his retirement, telling him what must have been music to Paul's ears, that he was back at work, everything goes well, and they could look forward once again to selling these paintings to rich Americans who would pay uh, large large sums for them. But of course, if you look at the date of that, it's a very important one, because if we imagine Monet sitting at his desk, writing his letter to Paul Durand-Ruel very happily, um, we can imagine at his elbow a newspaper from the very same day, June the 29th, 1914, reporting what every newspaper in France, every newspaper around the world was reporting on that day, which is, of course, the assassination in Sarajevo of Franz Ferdinand. And no one knew in June, no one knew in the summer of 1914 exactly what was going to happen. And no one knew it was going to be as horrific as it was. But of course, the war did come. And it came very catastrophically by August uh, and S- September of 1914. And so the great irony, the tragedy for Monet in some ways was that, or maybe in some ways, the fortunate fall, because he, it, he painted despite the war. He, but he got his, his will and his desire and his capability to paint back at exactly the same time that Europe descended into the maelstrom and, and fell into this terrible war. And the war came to overshadow, dominate, and define his work on the water lilies, such that, as I was saying, he referred to them as his war work. Um, the war came very close to Uh, Giverny, fortunately, was northwest of Paris, not to the east of Paris, and so he um, was able to, um, Giverny was not invaded, not taken over by the Germans, but there were a couple of moments where it looked as if Paris would fall initially in the summer of, uh, in August of 1914, before the Battle of the Marne uh, saved Paris in September of 1914. But on September the 1st, 1914, Monet wrote this letter saying that he would stay in Giverny regardless of what happened. He said, if those barbarians wish to kill me, I shall die among my canvases in front of my life's work. And this, when I first read this letter, probably about 10 years ago, I got the idea in some ways for this book because I had this wonderful image of Monet defiantly painting the water lilies um, despite the war, or almost because of the war he, he began painting them. Um, and at the, on September the 1st, 1914, Paris was emptying. Uh, the, all of the train stations were full of people trying to escape. Even the government of France had left at that point and gone, um, uh, gone to Bordeaux. And so Monet decided that he was going to stay. But of course, the war did come very close with things like the Zeppelin raids, which came through the Seine Valley, um, and Le Valois, which was bombed in 1915. Uh, was uh, only a matter of about 30 miles from Giverny, and Monet could hear the Zeppelin raids on Paris. He could hear the super cannon, which began bombarding Paris in March of 1918 and causing this massive destruction. Um, And the war also came very close to him because of the fact that there was a military hospital that opened in Giverny, where the the wounded soldiers were treated to vegetables from his garden. He had a, a vegetable garden, and one of the many ways in which he um, contributed to the war effort was to give vegetables for the wounded soldiers to be fed on. Um, but he had one soldier in particular to whom he was very close, and that was his son, Michel, um, who signed up in 1915. And in 1916 was at the Battle of Verdun, uh, probably the worst of all of the battles. And again, there's the wonderful painting, uh, or the striking painting uh, in of uh, Verdun in the mystical landscape show uh, here at the uh, AGO. Michel, I think, almost certainly suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder based on his experiences at Verdun. And I have to say, Monet was not always as sympathetic to him as he might have been. Uh, the question then is, what did Monet do in the course of the war as the, the world descended um, in, in, into this uh, terrible tragedy? And the answer is he painted. He painted maniacally. And he said he felt embarrassed about making experiments in form and color when the world was at war. But ultimately he came to see his, war, his paintings as being a kind of contribution to the war effort. And the government saw it as such and they actually began funding his painting because this, that for, the French, for the French people, for French intellectuals, World War I was the battle of civilization, i.e. France against barbarism, i.e. Germany. And so how there was the battle on the artistic front as well, which I um, talk about in the book. So Monet did so much work by the summer of 1915 and had so many canvases that he had to build a new studio, one of the largest studios um, that any artist has ever had. And you can see in which, the way in which he was working on a much larger scale than he'd been working before. It was most of his earlier paintings were maybe three feet, three and a half feet across by two or three feet high. These ones are enormous, five or six feet high by five or six feet wide. And he uh, painted uh, painted them inside in his grand studio by the summer of 1915, and then outside, beside the Lily Pond in the Clement Weather um, in the spring and the summer, and you can see from this film, which is a propaganda film made. It's shot in the summer of 1915. You can see Monet hard at work. And incidentally, if you want to watch this, it's a fascinating film. You can see it on YouTube because it's now, you can see Renoir and Rodin, Monet, Sarah Bernhardt, all of these people who were brought forward as great exemplars of French civilization. And Monet painted uh, nonstop through the war years. And if the, um, the barber had to come to him, if he needed a haircut, he didn't go to the barber the village. barber had to come and clip his locks as he, uh, as he painted. And it, the barber was not allowed to touch his beard, uh, which is this, this enormous tobacco-stained beard that he had. And so by the end of the war, he had a massive amount. He had achieved a massive amount of work. Um, first of all, what he called his great studies, these works that you saw in that film, or those from our home, or those among us, uh, that he painted beside the pond, which are, as I was saying, five or six feet high by the same amount wide. And he painted about 60 of those. And the real showstoppers. Any museum that's lucky enough to have one of them really makes a big show of it. And it's, they're paintings that, as curators say, can hold a wall. Um, but they, were only, they weren't even the half of it, because they were mere studies for what was coming after. And that, of course, was the grand décoration itself. He began using this term, as I said, by January of 1915. And so as early as that point in the war, when people realized, in fact, the war is not going to be over by Christmas 1914, Monet began thinking big, having this enormous decorative project that he was going to be working on. And these are the massive water lily compositions, all of which are six foot six inches high by like the one in Carnegie, almost 20 feet wide, or like the one at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, over 40 feet wide, or the Agapanthus Triptych in the Midwestern Museums, likewise over 40 feet wide. And Monet painted, it's known for a fact, 42 of these, of which 41 still exist, one was destroyed in a fire, but he may have painted as many as a dozen more. So he painted over 50 of these massive compositions. So he had yards and yards and yards of canvas. Um, And the question then was, what was he going to do with it? What was going to be the role of it? Especially during wartime, because there was going to be no state money available for doing something like this, and there could be no private collector at this point either who would be able to purchase it. So the question is, what did he have planned for it? And I'll end in a couple of minutes, because I'm always conscious of how last summer I was telling my editor, what I was going to be talking about and images I was going to show in the and the narrative I was going to construct and everything. And he stopped me midway through it and said, just remember, you don't have to tell everything. Um, and <laughs> the idea is to leave them wanting to know more, uh, not to know everything, and, and, and crucially, to leave them wanting to buy the book to find out <laughs> what's left. So I'll just give you a quick, uh, uh, tour of what does begin to happen in the the last few years of my story, maybe the last third of the book or so. When the war ended, Monet got his idea that he was going to donate two of his paintings to the French state. He was going to have Clemenceau accept them on his behalf and give them to uh, the, the French state. They were going to go into the Museum of Decorative Arts. So it was quite a modest donation, especially modest compared to what he had on offer. What happened then, he wrote this letter to Clemenceau the day after the armistice. One week later, Clemenceau came to Giverny for the first time, as far as I could tell, since February of 1915, because Clemenceau obviously, during the war years, had bigger fish to fry than coming to Giverny and enjoying lunch with Monet. And so he saw, for the first time, the grand decoration, and I think understandably realized, why should I just accept two paintings when there's all of, this rich, all of these riches on display. And so very quickly he aggrandized the donation and in the um, autumn of 1920 for Monet's 80th birthday it was publicly announced that it was not going to be two, it was rather going to be 12 paintings that were going to be left to the French state. But that's when the problem gets very difficult. Uh, because Monet then be, Monet's dream was on the brink of being realized. And I think maybe like many people, when they're about to realize their dream, they draw back from it, and he certainly drew back from it. And he began actively sabotaging, much to the, to the frustration of the tiger. He began fr- uh, frustrating and sabotaging the work that, uh, all, all of the work that Clemenceau was doing on his behalf. One of the problems, there are various ones, which I can't go into tonight. One of the problems though, was his eyesight was beginning to fail by 1920. It's unclear what was happening between 1914 and 1920, because he, I think maybe working on a larger scale, in fact, I'm sure that working on a larger scale meant that the cataract problems he had really were in abeyance or his paintings were, he, he was able to paint, but by 1920, because from 1914 to 1920, he complained about virtually everything. Um, maybe most vociferously, vociferously about the lack of cigarettes. The fact that the cigarettes were all going to the soldiers and he couldn't source them. and So he began exploring the black market, trying to, trying to get his cigarettes. Um, but his, he did not complain about his eyesight. His eyesight only appears to become a problem about 1920. And in fact, soon after the ink dried on the donation that he made, he began to suffer eye problems. And at one point he told Clemens, so when I'm dead I shall find their imperfections more bearable. Because he suddenly was unsure about the quality of them. And he began, uh, it, it became impossible to get these paintings away from him, any of them. The Art Institute of Chicago in Um, 1920 sent a team, Martin Ryerson, their principal donor, the man who essentially built the University of Chicago and the Art Institute, they sent a curator, they sent an architect, and they offered a massive sum to Monet for 30 of these paintings, and he would not let them go. He could have given Chicago 30 paintings, he would have had many, many more to give to the French state or to whomever, but he simply could not relinquish them. Um, and one of the problems was, of course, that he was uncertain about the quality of his eyesight. And some of the paintings certainly do show, if not um, maybe a visual visual disturbance, then maybe a psychological torment that he was feeling at that particular time. Um, it's interesting, though, that uh, often the, these paintings are regarded as artistic failures, but Monet, Uh, did not, I think, believe that there were failures, but for the simple reason he didn't destroy them. And I think he was making an artistic statement with a painting like this. In any case, just to bring the story to the conclusion quickly, he did, of course, finally get his installation, and we now can have our immersive experience at it. And that's at the Orangerie in Paris. How many of you have been there? Many of you, how many of you have been there since 1906, when it's shown much? I'm, I'm sorry, since, ni- since 2006. So I'm living in the early 20th century these days. At least I didn't say 1406, as I often do. Um, the, um, the, we get the immersive experience here. It opened, you'll note the date, May 1927. Monet died December 1926. Only when he was safely in the ground, in the churchyard in Giverny, could he relinquish them. And so two weeks after his death, a truck came from Paris, loaded them up, and took over 100 yards of canvas to Paris to be unspooled on the walls of not one room, not one circular room, but rather two elliptically uh, spaced rooms. And I described the construction of this and all the difficulties. The fact that Monet drove two architects to early graves, I think, with the demands that he made upon them. Interestingly enough, When it opened, it was a failure. The reviews were very bad. Um, Even the curator said, this is no longer impressionism, but it's decline." And it was often commented on that it was the work of an old man. He'd had poor eyesight at that time. He'd committed artistic suicide, one critic said, and it was regarded as the truly pitiful crowning of his career. I should point out that Monet's earlier works, everything pre the water lilies, or pre these late water lilies, was still celebrated. Monet's star did not wane at any point. But these were seen as an embarrassment. However, all you have to do is wait a generation or so, and opinions change. And of course, by the 1940s, late 40s, and in the 1950s, then it was regarded, it was described as the Sistine Chapel of Impressionism, one of the summits of French genius, a great triumph, et cetera, or one of my favorite, well, probably the um, most lucrative and perspicacious telegram ever sent from Alfred H. Barr, the director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to one of his curators who was traveling in France in the mid-1950s. He sent her a telegram and in capital letters said, Buy Monet, by which he meant buy one of these big late water lilies from the studio where it had been rolled up for the past over 20 years, where Michel Monet, who didn't die until until 1966, where Michel Monet had custody of them and no one had been interested in them for many years. Now suddenly there was this great Um, appetite for them. And so Barr got his water lilies. Uh, Sadly it was the one that burned in the fire at MoMA in 1958 Um, and therefore MoMA bought another one a couple of years later uh, which cost them vastly more than the one that they bought uh, in in the mid 1950s. And it's now of course uh, one of the ones in which we can have this immersive experience. Um, I'll just maybe conclude with uh, with this particular image because I began the lecture by talking about the way in which how it would be lovely to have the virtual reality experience of walking into one of Monet's paintings, and I think he, in the end, has given us that most of all at the Orangerie in Paris, but also wherever you have these massive, twenty feet or forty feet wide paintings, which are ambulatory—you have to walk across them, you have to back up. You have to walk forward. You have this wonderful, immersive experience in them where you can enjoy vicariously this wonderful, enchanted world that Monet created through the water and flora in Giverny, in which of course he created um, in his studio with paint and canvas. Anyway, I'll end on that note, so hopefully um, we have time for uh, um, some questions. And I believe there are going to be roving microphones for. Um, anyone, but if you shout it out from the front row, I can repeat it as well, so everyone can hear it.
1: Can you let us know a little bit more about Monet's experience in Zen Buddhism?
2: Oh well, I should—that—that's that, really Catherine's topic. The—it really comes from his passion for Japanese art. Um, Monet was, uh, uh, like many of his generation, absolutely loved Japanese culture. Um, he, the, the virtually every. Uh, artist who came of age in the 1860s and 1870s, was influenced by Japanese art. And uh, Monet said, if you want to compare me to anyone, compare me to the old Japanese, by which he meant uh, the, the painters like Hokusai and Hiroshige, who, um, who he called Japanese impressionists. And in the book, I discuss what the impressionists in general, and Monet in particular, took away from them in terms of composition. Um, the The scales fell from Monet's eyes when he first saw Japanese art, according to a very good friend who sort of wrote wrote autobiographical pieces about Monet, wrote autobiographical things in which he included biographical things about one of his best friends who was Claude Monet. The story is that he was in, um, in 1871, he was in Holland, um, buying probably pipe tobacco or cigarette tobacco, um, in a, a shop, and the um, the spice merchant wrapped it up in a what turned out to be a Japanese woodblock print. Mon got back to his apartment or his hotel uh, he was painting in Holland at this time, unwrapped it and saw what the grocer had done and rushed back to uh, uh, the the store and bought all of the wrapping paper and so and that was the beginning of his uh, the two hundred and thirty one Japanese woodblock prints that he had in Giverny, and also the beginning, of course, of his huge huge admiration for Japanese culture. And I said that he often looked askance at Americans, um, and if an American came to see him, he or she might or might not get past the front door. Uh, But if a a Japanese uh, painter especially always would, uh, many visitors would come to see Monet and talk about how in the garden were Japanese visitors whom Monet was entertaining. Clemenceau also, as I described, had, was great friends with a number of Japanese dignitaries, many of which he, or some of which he dealt with um, at the Treaty of Versailles. And so he would have sent his chauffeured limousine uh, to ferry these people to, uh, to Giverny to have lunch with Monet. And so the relationship was very close. The, the Zen aspect I know less about, I'm not sure if Catherine wants to take the stage and, and talk about that. but the. Um, fascinating thing for me is the the kind of disparity between the meditative aspect of Monet because he did meditate on, uh, on it and, and loved reveries and his paintings are all about reveries. In fact one of the ones he painted of his wife in um, in 1870 when they were living in London as exiles from France during the franco prussian War he called meditation. It was meditation uh, uh, Camille on the sofa, on the canopy, uh, and so he was very interested in meditation and, and inducing meditative states in people, and that's what the, uh, the the Grand Decoration and the Water Lily paintings were all about. Um, but the huge irony, of course, is that he often was not meditative as he worked on them, and, uh, because he was, his friends called him Le Latour, the Wrestler, and he was someone who wrestled with his wrestled with nature. Um so I'm hoping to know more about Zen Buddhism and Monet, because Catherine and I are going to, I think, talk about it more in the next uh, next week or so. But thank you for your question, because I'm uh, I'm always happy. To, I didn't bring Japanese art into the lecture itself, always hoping someone would ask about it.
1: On Sunday morning, uh, when you were interviewed by uh, Michael Enright, you mentioned something about the hybridization of the water lilies that gave rise to new colors, which may have inspired Monet. Could you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yes. It and once thank you for that question because that's one thing I don't talk about in the lecture either with hope with hope someone will bring it up. It's um, his love of water lilies is fascinating because it it is symbolic and it is the lotus. And in the book I have about two or three pages on the symbolism of the water lily in France and what it meant in French culture at that particular time. Um, and my editor circled that and said did Monet know any of this? And if he didn't, it's not relevant. And I said, um, he would certainly have known at least some of it, but it was relevant because other people interpreted the water lilies in particular ways. Um, I won't go into that, but there is a chapter, I've got a chapter in the book when I I look at these readings of it. Um, And people often saw the water lilies as kind of displaced females. Monet's Elise was apparently very jealous, and she said, if you have any young women coming and posing for you, I'm out the door. And so a lot of the critics at the time, and critics still today, I'm less sure of this, uh, say that this is sort of a displacement activity, painting these flowers. But he fell in love with them in 1889 at the World's Fair, for which the Eiffel Tower was built um, and Monet seems not to have been impressed with the Eiffel Tower as, of course, no one, none of the intellectuals in France were at that time, but he loved the water lilies, which he saw. Um, they had been done by a man named Latour Marliac, who was a great botanist, and he, cre- he managed to find a way of creating, a, I guess, a cultivar, or hybrid between the hardy French variety of water lily and the Um, uh, the one from Mesoamerica that had bright colors. Previously, before 1889, all you saw in France were water lilies with white flowers. But in 1889 at the Trocadero, Monet saw colored flowers on the water lilies. And he wrote at that point, this would make a good motif for painting, which has to be one of the great understatements in the history of art. Because of course, a a decade later, he would begin painting nothing but that. Um, And so, Um, He bought, and Latour Marliac still exists, and they've got online Monet's order, uh, the the order he placed for lotuses, which sadly died, um, and all of the colored water lilies that he wanted. And he spent 10 years really getting them to mature, figuring out how he could could get them to work, and having his gardeners look after them. They had to give them, until about 1907 or 1908, they had to be given a daily dunking in the water to... um, uh, to get the dirt off them because of paved road. If you've been there, you know that a road separ- and a railway track separate uh, the water lily garden from the rest of Monet's garden. And by 1907, so many cars were coming down that road with rubber neckers trying to see into his garden uh, that Monet um, had had to send out Uh, his gardeners each morning to clean them, to dunk them in the water and ultimately in 1908 he paid for the paving of the road so he didn't have to worry about that. But the the second part of your question is about the colour. Monet was not someone who embraced technology apart apparently from the internal combustion engine um, and the, the cars that he loved so much, but he was against the march of progress, he was against telegraph poles appearing in Giverny. He was sort of the ultimate NIMBY. He didn't want, when a factory was going to open in Giverny, he d- didn't want it to, he objected to that. And he could kill any of these projects dead because of his influence. Uh, but the, as far as painting technology, he embraced it. And um, I think Michael Enright had asked, a lot of people thought that was live and everyone, people said, are you in Toronto now? But I was actually um, in Western, I did that two or three, year, two or three weeks ago. Um, and I, so I can't quite remember what he asked me, but I think it was about the colors that Monet began using as early as the late 1860s when chemists developed new colors like cobalt and violet. And so Monet loved using radiant colors um, in his paintings. And one of the things that he did as he painted was to express the oil, he express the poppy oil binder out of them. Because if you stand very close to those haystack paintings or, or really any of those eight paintings in the exhibition here, um, you can see uh, that they're very matte. The colors are bright, but they're very matte. They're not glossy because he knew from going into the Louvre that all the old masters turned, uh, co- turned color. They yellowed or they, they, they turned, they, they burnished. One of my favorite art quotes is the collector who told John Constable, a good painting like a good fiddle should be brown. Because of course the old masters the, when the, the, the oil leached to the surface, all the old masters looked brown and Monet did not want his uh, paintings to be brown. My other great one, just as a footnote to that one, is the Evelyn Waugh saying that what, art, what people wanted at that time were uh, paintings that matched the dining room mahogany and the roast mutton. And so <laughs> Monet was not a roast mutton painter. He wanted, he was a fruit salad painter. He wanted them to be extremely bright so I'm not sure if that answered what you were asking about, but I do have, just to leave you wanting more, a chapter about the water lilies and, and what they might have meant to Monet. I
1: think we have time for one last question. Um, could you add anything about his very early life as a child or in his teens, and if he had always planned to dedicate his life to art or what his plan was in schooling and whatever?
2: Yes, it's very interesting. Sadly, um, little is known about his very early life. He was born in Paris. Um, on the Rue Lafitte, which was where all of the art was, became the street of painters. And so, um, as Clemenceau said, this was possibly a premonition of what he was destined for. Uh, but when he was about four or five years old, his family moved to the Normandy coast. And that's really where he grew up, where he lived from about 1845 until he went at the age of 19 in 1859 to study in Paris. But his painting career, no one's even sure what his father did. His father appears to have been some sort of wholesaler grocer who dealt with the ships that came into the harbor at Le Havre where he grew up. Um, And uh, so we don't know a lot about his his very early life, but the myth myth of him that we get from him, and Monet was very happy to mythify his life. Uh, But what seems to have been the case is that at about 14 or 15, so in the mid-1850s, he became a, or he did cartoons, he did caricatures, and we reproduce some of them in the book, and they're actually really wonderful cartoons of local worthies, actors, politicians, in this provincial shipping town um, on the English Channel. And the story goes that one of the local painters, a man named Eugene Boudin, uh, saw them, who was a great landscape painter, in fact, a great sea painter, great seascape painter, um, saw them in the window and asked the stationer who was st- uh, showing them um, to introduce him to who, who, who this Oscar Monet, because he was known as Oscar at that point, to introduce him to young Oscar, and he did. And then uh, Boudin took Monet uh, on painting expeditions along the coast. And according to Gustave Geffroy who wrote a biography of Monet in 1922, Uh, what uh, Monet saw his destiny played out before him as he watched Boudin creating seascapes on canvas. And that's when he then decided that he was going to go to Paris. So he went to Paris in 1859 and immediately fell in with a kind of bohemian crowd like uh, Gustave Courbet, who was one of his, the great French realist painter, who was one of his first heroes. Um, And so he sort of lived a, uh, a left bank life wearing corduroy and, and smoking and drinking and hanging out with artists and uh, just uh, maybe a footnote just uh, maybe the last thing I'll say about Monet that's underrated is Monet the intellectual because we usually associate him I think for good reason with painters and we maybe would naturally assume that his best friends were the impressionists but in fact the impressionists were very split in terms of personalities and in terms of politics and things like that. He was very good friends with Cezanne and even more especially with Renoir. Um, But with Degas, he fell out for many years. Uh, In fact, more than painters, he was friends with writers. Uh, Clemenceau was a writer, writer, intellectual in his own right besides a politician. But his uh, other two best friends were Octave Mirbeau, who is a great writer. In fact, I've written a little piece for the Globe and Mail about Mirabeau, which I think is coming out next week, um, and Gustave Geoffroy, who I've quoted a couple of times tonight. And Monet had a great library of books, which I tried to reconstruct. When painting wasn't going well, or when he was depressed, he would sort of lose himself in, uh, in novels. we uh, would read the French history, he would read the novels of Emile Zola. Zola was a very good friend of his. Um, and so Monet was a great intellectual. And one of the things he did as a young man in Paris was hang out with these people and get a passion for, uh, for intellectual discussion. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to, wanted to bring out in the book. And so when my editor said, did he know anything about water lilies and the mythology and the symbolism of them? That was sort of the, the shield I held up in order to defend these, these passages that I was very proud of having researched and written and managed to keep in the book.
1: Right. Thank you once again for that fantastic. Thanks
2: very much.